This morning, we are continuing our series that we started called Rhythms of Life. Rhythms of Life. We want to create rhythms, spiritual disciplines in our life uh, for the purpose of spiritual maturity. I gave a definition of rhythms last week. I'm going to remind you of what this is so you'll know uh, what we're after. Rhythm is simply a regularly uh, recurring sequence of events, actions, or processes. So what we're wanting to see happen this summer is to look at different rhythms, different habits that we could see develop that are recurring, um, their, their actions, their processes, there's things that we're doing on an ongoing basis uh, for the purpose of spiritual growth. And last week we started the series by explaining the why before we gave you the what. Before we give you what rhythms we want to develop, we told you why we were doing these. Many people, when they think about reading the Bible or going to church or uh, praying, things like that, those rhythms, those spiritual disciplines, we think we do them because that's what good Christians do. And what we discovered last week is that the essence of Christianity is not your to-do list. It's about a relationship we have with God through the finished work of Jesus. And so the rhythms that we're wanting to create and develop really are ways that we abide in Christ so that we experience the relationship that we've been redeemed to experience. And so it's not about us doing, it's about us abiding. And this morning, we're going to talk about our first rhythm, and that is the Word of God, the reading and abiding in the Word of God. So this sermon really it has two parts. I'm preaching the first part today, and the second part of this sermon will be after Father's Day. And uh, we're just simply calling this sermon that has two parts, People of the Word. And so my prayer is, is that uh, you would develop the rhythm in your life of reading, studying, memorizing, meditating on uh, the, the Word of God um, so that you can be people of the word. And so as we jump into this, I'm going to get you uh, to grab your Bible if you would. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, why the Bible is no ordinary book, why it is that we should be developing this rhythm in our life. So if you'll go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, while you're turning there, let me give you the context for this. Paul, the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament, has an apprentice, a disciple named Timothy. Um, Timothy had a godly grandmother and a godly mother. He came to faith in Christ, discipled by the Apostle Paul. In 2 Timothy, Paul, one of the main purposes of this letter is, Paul is, for lack of better terms, he is passing the baton of his ministry over to Timothy. Paul knows that his time of departure, his death, is close at hand, and so he is passing the baton to his spiritual son in the ministry named Timothy. And one of the things that Paul emphasizes to Timothy is the importance of the Word of God, the necessity of the Word of God in the life of a believer for him as a pastor and for the church of, of God so that we would be able to live the life that God has uh, for us. And so we're going to look at primarily two verses. We'll see some others in here. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, if you're there, say, I'm there. This is what Paul tells his uh, disciple Timothy. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, one of my favorite stories uh, historically about the Bible and its uniqueness is a story about French philosopher Voltaire. French philosopher Voltaire lived in his uh, days of the 1700s and he was adamantly opposed to Christianity. He, he refused to accept the Bible as the way in which we should guide our thoughts and this new way of thinking and understanding. He thought he knew better than God's Word. And, and so he made several attacks. And one of the large gatherings, very popular man, had a huge gathering of people, and he made this prophecy. He said, within 100 years, 
the Bible will be non-existent and will have no place in culture or society. Well, a few years later, Voltaire died and uh, went to his grave. And ironically enough, because of his celebrity and popularity, they took his house and said, let's put it up for auction. People will want to buy this because of his claim to fame and all of these things. And so they had this auction. They're going to auction off all of his, uh, his house and, and, and everything that he had. And so the auction started, and man, the, the bidding kept getting higher and higher and higher and higher. And finally, uh, the gavel broke, and the, the auctioneer said, sold the highest bidder. The French Bible Society purchased Voltaire's house, clears the house out, gets rid of all of his stuff, and turned his home into the number one distribution centers, uh, center of God's word in, in, in France during that day and time. Does God have a sense of humor or what? <laughs> like you're talking about irony. He's saying, listen, the, Christi- the, the, the Bible is going to be non-existent within 100 years. Within a couple of years, his own home began to, to be the central place that the Bibles were printed and distributed. So what's the point of the story? The Bible is a kind of a unique book in this, that throughout history, no book has faced more scrutiny, more criticism, uh, more hatred, more persecution. No other book ever written has suffered uh, more than the Bible has, has suffered at the hands of men. I mean, there have been laws that, that have been passed to outlaw it. We, we, there have been uh, times where uh, cultures and society would gather as many Bibles as possible to burn them so that it would try to erase it from history. And yet the Bible continues to persevere, not just to survive, but the Bible to this day is the most quoted, most read, and, and best-selling book of all history. Right now, during COVID-19, we were hearing from a number of large box stores that they could not get prints and copies of the Bible fast enough because it was selling as soon as they got it in. So here's the question. How can a book be so polarizing? What makes the Bible so criticized, hated, scrutinized, and yet so loved, revered, and cherished? Well, Paul gives us the answer to this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. There's one phrase that he gives at the very start of verse 16, and it's very clear. This is what makes the Bible unique. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, this is important that we understand this. This is what makes the Bible no ordinary book. First of all, Paul says all scripture. You know what the word all means? It means all. You're really smart in this room today. All scripture, every bit from Genesis to Revelation, all scripture is breathed out by God. Paul uses a phrase here that is very unique. He uses two words that make a compound word, and this is the word that Paul uses, theos noustos. Theos noustos. Theos meaning God. Noustos is a nomadic term meaning to breathe or air or exhale. Paul literally is saying that all scripture, all of it from Genesis to Revelation is exhaled by God. It is breathed by God. It comes out of the very mouth of God. This is a a term, this theos noustos is a word that um, it's only found here in the Bible And there's no other ancient literature that we can find that has that term. So in other words, it's a unique word describing the uniqueness of the word. Theos noustos. God exhaled. I love what Pastor Brian Loritz says about this. He says, what you and I hold in our hands, referring to the Bible, what you and I hold in our hands are the sovereign exhalings of a holy God. 
What makes this book no ordinary book is that this book is literally breathed out by God. That makes this book no ordinary book. Breathed out by God. You say, well, how is that possible? How could human authors write this thing that we are saying is breathed out by God? Well, Second Peter, we find a passage of Scripture there. I'm not going to go into it, but Peter clarifies the answer to that question of how can human authors write the breathed out word of God. Well, Peter says that when the men wrote the sacred scriptures, they wrote as they were moved by the spirit of God, the breath of God. And so you have human hands writing the scripture, but God breathing the words of scripture into the men that were moved in from their hand to write it. So even with human authors, what you have is, is the source of the scriptures does not come from the author itself, but the ultimate author, which is God himself, breathed out by God. And here's why this is so important. When God speaks, things happen. God's word is powerful. When God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, people change. Think about Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, what does it say? God speaks, and when God speaks, things like water and dirt and Mount Everest and the solar systems and the universe happen just at the very word of God. God's word is powerful. In Exodus, God speaks to Moses, this coward who's running for his life from Egypt. And when God speaks to Moses, he is immediately transformed and an entire nation is delivered all because God spoke. When God speaks to the prophets in the Old Testament, famines happen, droughts happen, pestilence happen. And then the very word of God through the prophets, all of a sudden the rain falls and the crops grow and humanity flourishes all with the power of the word of God. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks. And when Jesus speaks, the power of the word of God evokes change. Lepers are healed at the word of Jesus, blind people receive their sight. At the word of Jesus, those who are lame can walk again. At the word of Jesus, um, women like uh, the, he found at the, uh, at the well in John chapter 4 receive a brand new life. When Jesus speaks, even the dead are raised to life. Why? Because God's word is powerful. And when God's word is spoken, things happen and people change. And listen, this is good news for us. You know what this means when he says all scripture is God breathed? It means that God has not left humanity in the dark. That we are not deists in this room. That we believe that God not only created us, but he has a plan and, and a purpose for creating us. And now through the word of God, we understand his plan and his purpose. You see, questions that we are wrestling with as humanity, such as the, 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 the meaning of life and, and the purpose of life and is there hope in life and what happens after life and what's broken with my life and how can I be restored? All of those questions that we wrestle with, God in his grace and mercy has given us a word, breathed out so that we could have the deepest answers that we have in our soul, questions that we have in our soul answered from him. And listen, what we find fascinating about the Bible is that there's an answer for all of those, and his name is Jesus. And see, this is where I've wrestled all week. I'll be honest with you. I, I, so by nature, I'm passionate about the Bible. If I'm going to devote my life to something, I might want to be passionate about the thing that I'm devoted my life to, right? The preaching of God's word. And so by nature, I'm an apologist. I love, and what I mean by apologist is that I love 
I don't want to use the word defending the scripture because I don't think the Bible needs to be defended. Like Billy Graham said, uh, the Bible doesn't need to be defended just like a lion doesn't need to be defended. If you want to let a lion, you know, protect itself, just set it off the leash, it'll defend itself, right? So I, don't, I just want to unleash God's word. I don't want to defend it. But apologetics means an explanation of the faith. So I love explaining why I believe the Bible, and I don't have time to get into it. I've wrestled all week with not wanting to run down this rabbit trail, and I feel like I'm on it already. Because believing the Bible isn't blind faith. Believing the Bible is informed faith. There is a faith element to trusting the Bible, but that is not a blind, ignorant faith. You don't turn your brain off. When you think about the Scripture and you look at the, just, the, the, just from the uh, secular side of literature and what criteria is used and methods are used to see the validity of, of, of literature that's written, what you find is, is that when you scrutinize Scripture and when you use the test used for any other piece of ancient literature, what you find is, is that the Bible not only stands the test, but it surpasses the test greater than any other piece of ancient literature ever written. And I'm not going to go into the detail, although I really want to. So when we understand the Bible and why we believe it, when you really dive into textual criticism and why it is we can trust this book, here's what you'll discover. You don't turn your mind off to believe the Bible. You actually have to turn your mind off not to believe the Bible. And so here's what I would encourage you to do. Go to our website, and there's a series that I preach called Let Me Explain. And in that series, uh, I have about a 55-minute sermon on why I believe the Bible, and I'll give you some great um, apology research that I've done and, and people have written about that we put in that sermon. Now, um, I'm not going to leave it there because I told you I want to run down this rabbit trail and I want to give you so much more. But let me just give you one. All right, you ready? Can I give one? I'm not asking. Okay, I've got the microphone. So uh, when you think about the uniqueness, when you think about the, the answers that we're looking for, the questions that we're trying to answer in life, and they're all kind of the Bible's pointing them to Jesus as, as the focus and as the answer. This is one of the reasons that the Bible is so unique. Do you know that the Bible is not one book? The Bible is 66 individual books that when you put together, complete one book. So it's, it's one book, but it's made up of 66 different books. Now take a think about this. 66 different books, 40 different authors. 40 different authors. Most of them did not know one another. They have different backgrounds, different professions, different level of education, different worldview, different religious background, different ways in which they see the world. So you have 66 books, 40 different authors. Listen to this. Over a 1,400-year period of time on three different continents, in three different languages. Yet, when you take those 66 books, 40 different authors, three languages, three continents, over a 1,400-year period of time, and you make them and put them together, you get one major theme, and that is God's redemption of humanity and one leading character, and that's Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible is unique. It is the word of God. It is exhaled by God. It is the the breath of God speaking into creation. And we can trust this book. And listen, it is in this book that we find life. It is this book where we discover God's will for our life. It is in this book that we find hope and purpose and direction and meaning. And I just want to encourage you this morning. Listen, for some of us in this room, you need to put down your best-selling author books that you use and your Jesus calling for your devotion. And you need to lay aside those things and you need to pick up the book. And I know for some of you, you're like, pump the brakes. You just said Jesus calling. I shouldn't read. No, no, I'm telling you, Jesus calling is not breathed out by God, but this book is. 
Now, I love, I love, there's great authors. I love reading Max Licato. I think that Beth Moore is amazing. I think Priscilla Shire is one of the best communicators and authors of our day. But listen, nothing they have written is equal with this book right here. And it would do Christians good to use those as secondary resources rather than primary resources because here's what we've done. We have become anemic as Christians. We've become unhealthy because we're taking somebody's commentary with one little phrase of Scripture and we're going, God spoke to me and gave me a pep talk today and now I can do life and your backside's being handed to you by the enemy because you don't have foundation for your life because all you've been doing is reading the words of man and you've not been resting your life on the word of God and this is what we need we need the word of God this is the word that's been given to us by God that loves us notice what Paul says about the word of God he says this he says all scripture is breathed out by God, and I love this, and it's profitable. The word profitable means beneficial, helpful, useful. It gives us something. You say, what's in it for me? Well, it's profitable. It's, if there's something in it for you. When you get into the book, there's something you get out of the book. So this is the thing we've got to understand. There's a lot of people in our culture that will tell us that the Bible is outdated, it's antiquated, it's no longer relevant to our society. We're living in an information age where we can get things you know, at our fingertips within a second. Information is changing all around us. And so we don't need things like the Bible to help us navigate through life. And I'm telling you right now, the Bible is just as relevant and profitable to our life today as it was the day that God inspired the men who wrote it. And we need to be people of the, of the Word. So what is it profitable for? Paul tells us. He gives us three th- four things. I'm going to give them to you in three uh, because two of them go together. So what is the Bible useful for? Why should I get in it? It's, it's breathed out by God, and how is it profitable? Let me give you three things to write down. The first is this. The Bible teaches us what to believe. The Bible teaches us what to believe. He says, the first of all, it's profitable for, profitable for teaching. The, 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 the issue here is doctrine. This is what he's talking about here. Right belief. That's what doctrine is. It's an understanding. It's a belief system that we hold. And this is what Paul is encouraging us uh, to, to see here in the Scriptures. Timothy, who he's writing to, is, um, is facing a lot of dilemmas as a pastor. And not only is Timothy a pastor, he's a pastor of pastors. And in a lot of the churches that Timothy was given oversight uh, for, there, there was false teachers that were creeping into the church and they were misleading. They were taking a little bit of the gospel, a little bit of God's word, and they were twisting it and leading people astray. And he's telling Timothy, you're the watchman of the church. So you've got, to have, you've got to be people of the word because these false teachers are going to come in. And if you're, you're going to be a good shepherd, you've got to be able to spot a wolf. How do you spot a wolf? You look at their teaching. And if it's lined up with Scripture or not, that's how you know. And so he's writing him this, 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 this letter reminding him that you've got to be on your guard, that we need the word of God to help us know what to believe. Now I want you to listen to what Paul says in chapter 4. This is strong language. This is strong language. Look what he says in chapter 4 to Timothy. He says, I charge you. I mean, this is, this is like this, it's almost like this deathbed father imparting the last words of wisdom to a son. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, listen to this, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Now, this is strong language. He says, Timothy, look at me. I've got something to tell you. I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead. In other words, you're going to stand before God and give an account. It's on the basis of that authority that I'm telling you something. What does he tell him? Three words. Preach the word. Preach the word. The church needs to know what to believe, and he tells Pastor Timothy, if there's anything you're going to do, you better preach the word. Why? He tells him. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, For a time is coming... 
When people, this is prophetic here, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will having itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into mess. That describe the day and time which we live or what? The day is coming, he says, Timothy, when people will gather in churches and they will no longer want to hear sound doctrine and, and sound teaching. They'll only want to hear things to scratch their itching ears. What is he saying? Let me kind of put it in another term that we might understand. All they're going to want is warm fuzzies. They're going to want spiritual pep talks. They're going to want to, uh, they're going to, want to have a pep rally on Sunday where you just tell them what they want to hear, make them feel good about themselves, and send them on uh, with their day. And what we're seeing right now in the church in America is pastor after pastor after pastor compromising in the preaching of God's word. And we're only giving pieces and bites of it and, and things that make people feel good. We won't say the hard stuff and challenge our belief system and make sure we're seeing the world, world rightly. And we just want to spoon feed people things that they want to hear. And listen, I'm not loving you as a pastor and there is no church. If you're here just as a guest and you're looking for a church home, I'm telling you, you find a church where the pastor will with love preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and stay faithful to this world where this is the calling of the church, to be people of the word. And Paul is telling Timothy, listen, there's a lot of things in this world that's going to bring people away from the truth, but you need to teach them the truth. And I'll just say this to you, church family. Listen, I've been pastoring here 10 years, and I've said this almost regularly for the last 10 years. If there's ever a day where I step into this pulpit, if I stand on this stage and I begin to preach a sermon to you that does not come from this book or twist this book, you fire me on the spot. You call an emergency elders meeting, you pack my office, and you kick me to the curb because I am not worthy to stand on this stage and call it preaching if it's not preaching God's word. I have nothing to say. Why? Listen, we need to know what we believe. How we navigate through a world that's as crazy as it is right now. Politically and socially, we are spinning out of control. You know what the world is looking for? It's looking for truth. We have an opportunity right now for believers to rise up and proclaim truth. And listen, it doesn't mean that we're trying to be controversial. We're not trying to offend the world by preaching the word. Listen, the word is an offense in and of itself. If we will with grace like Jesus approach the world with truth, you know what we find? What we'll find is that Jesus is going to be answering a lot of the questions the world is asking. The problem is, is that the church doesn't know what we believe, therefore we don't know how to respond. And this is what we need. In a world that says truth is found in you and it's, it's relevant and, and what you feel is what you feel and that's what's true for you and this is what's true for me and even though they're opposing, we can all be right. Man, that's craziness. Truth doesn't come from inside of me. It comes from outside of me and it's revealed to me by the word of God. At my house, I, we just moved a couple, about 18 months ago and uh, so there was a private road that was turned into a, a county road and uh, now, depending on what GPS device you, you, you pull up our address on, it will take you to our home, it will take you away from our home and tell you it's our home. And I can't tell you how many people are trying to deliver stuff, they're calling me and they're like, hey, I'm at your house. I'm like, no, you're not, because I'm here and you're not. And they're like, no, 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 I'm at your house. I put the address in and it took me, I am at your house. I'm in Gilmer. I'm like, yeah, I'm in Gilmer. Well, you're not at my house. And they'll argue with me for a second. I'm like, bro, I know where I live. <laughs> I said, the problem is, what device did you use? They told me, I was like, yeah, you're using a faulty device. They didn't have the update. You need to become an Apple you know, snob and get the right device and then it'll take you to the right place. 
So we can have this argument about whether they're at my house or not at my house, but the truth is what? They're either there or they're not. They can believe with all of their heart, and the GPS can get them to this place that they think is my home. But if it's not where I live, it's not where my address is, listen, it doesn't matter what they think, feel, or believe, or what they've been told. And that's truth. Listen, God's Word is where we find truth in this life. And can I just say something? I've already been overstepping talking about Jesus calling, and some of you are already mad at me, so might as well do it while I get it all out at one time. Can I just urge Christians, please, listen to me. If there was anything that I got to urge Christians to do today in our culture, where we are with our political chaos, with our social chaos, all the crazy things we're trying to navigate through, listen, if I could urge you to do anything, I'm asking you, turn off CNN and Fox News and stop letting these news outlets inform the way you think, believe, and feel, and observe the world around you. We've got to stop the nonsense. We've got to stop the nonsense. Listen, it, it, it bothers me. The world is burning and the world is out of control and there is truth and there is hope and there are answers and there's life in this book. But we're putting the book down. We're turning the TV on and through social media and Fox News and CNN, we're trying to be informed on how to process everything that's happening. And the world is going, which way do we go? And the church doesn't have a clue because we're being informed in the same place that they're being informed. And it bothers me, church, when we are quoting Anderson Cooper and Sean Hannity more than we're quoting the Apostle Paul and the Gospel of John. And listen, this has to stop. The world needs believers who will turn off the television, pick up the Bible, get their nose in this book. Let God speak to you and inform you on what you are to believe so that as you see the chaos, you're able to bring truth into the equation. The church has never been more primed to see an ultimate revival and a breakthrough spiritually in our nation. But we've got to turn the TV off and put social media away and get in the word of God. God, we need to know what to believe and how to interpret the world, and this is how we know it. That's number one. I promise I won't be in a soapbox anymore the rest of the day. Here's number two. So it teaches us what to believe. Number two, it exposes our failures and redirects our heart. It exposes our failure and it redirects our heart. So Paul says two words here. He says it's profitable for teaching, and then he says two words, for reproof and correcting. The word reproof is the idea of exposing our failures. Some of y'all have the translation where it uses the word rebuke. That's really a very clear, direct word here. It's exposing our failures, exposing, showing us where we're off. So just think about it like this. If you have a line on a page that's crooked, but it looks straight, but you don't know if it's straight or not, how do you determine whether it's straight or crooked? You've got to get a standard. You've got to get something that is straight, and you lay it over the top of your line, and then when you lay what is straight over the top of your line, it becomes the standard, and it exposes whether or not what you are, the line is straight or whether it's crooked, right? Well, the Word of God serves in our life like this. It's like, how do we know if we're drifting off course? How do we know if we're out of step? How do we know if our worldview is skewed by, you know, popular culture? Well, we lay God's Word over it, and when we see, okay, God's Word says this, but I'm doing this, then I, I'm wrong, I'm off. It's exposing this. It's showing me where I'm off. The other illustration I use, it's like the, my son broke his arm a couple of years ago and we took him to the doctor. We didn't know where the break was. We didn't even know really how severe it was or even if it was broken. So we just knew it probably was. We took him and they, what did they do immediately? They took him in there and they x-rayed it. Why? Because the x-ray machine was able to see past the surface and to expose the true condition of his hand and his wrist. And they came back and said it was broken and they showed us where it was broken and they began to tell us how to fix it 
The Bible does this. It's able to expose parts of our life and areas of our heart where we're not walking in line with what God has. So not only does it teach us the truth, but it shows us how we're not living in the truth. The, the writer of Hebrews says it like this. I love what he says. He says, the word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now notice what he's saying here. It's, it's powerful, it's active, it's alive, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces and it cuts. The whole idea is it's like a scaffold that lays us open. It gets to the deepest parts of who we are. It talks about the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. So the word of God gets beyond the surface that we put up for other people to see. The Word of God gets down to the intentions of my heart. It sees the imaginations of my mind. It, it roots around in places that you can't get to. The Word of God lays those things open and exposes them. Listen, we need, I've heard this years ago, and I've said it a number of times here. Listen, we need, listen, not just to get in the Word. We need to let the Word get into us. It's not just about you opening the Bible. It's about the Bible opening you and examining and exposing areas of your life that is inconsistent with what His truth has revealed. But not only does it uh, uh, expose our failures, but it redirects our heart. This is the word correcting. It redirects our heart. So it, it's, the word correcting here is a, a word that literally means to, uh, to place back into its upright position. So, so if something falls over, it's picking it up and putting it in its right place. So uh, exposing means, hey, it's fallen. Correcting means let's put it back where it's supposed to be. I'll use the illustration I used a second ago with my son's arm. We uh, had x-rays, and so he was able to we see the, the, the break was here, and this is uh, the condition that it's in. And so we went and sat in a room, and the doctor comes in, and he looks at it. He has the x-rays. He says, yeah, this is where it's fractured. And what does he do? He grabs it, and he squeezes the hand, and he sets the bone back in place and puts a cast on it. Why? Because in that moment, he's correcting it. The, the Bible serves as that doctor. The Bible not only exposes us like an x-ray, but it corrects. It, it comes in and says, okay, let me set it back the way it's supposed to be. And I love this about the Scripture, that the Scripture just doesn't just beat us up. It's not a club that the Holy Spirit uses just to bash us up and make us feel bad. The, 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 the Word of God is used by the Holy Spirit to reveal things that are inconsistent and then with grace and mercy show us what it's supposed to look like. I'll use this illustration. I've heard one guy say that the Bible is the best player co player's coach ever. You know, here's what I mean. Uh, player's coach is a coach that people refer to as just being loved by the players. And, and the best player's coach in sports are the coaches that expect the best out of their athletes, but they really love the athletes. And so what they do is they'll show them where they're weak. They'll show them the errors of their way. They'll show them where they need improvement. So they'll call out, hey, you're not good at this, and this is a struggle, and you didn't do this right. But then they'll put their arm around them and show them, now, let me show you the correct way. My daughter plays for a travel team, and her coach goes to our church, and he is the best I've ever seen at this, of being able to bring out of the player more than anybody else can. And he'll say hard stuff to them. He'll tell them where they are and not sugarcoat it. But he does that in a way where he says, here's where you're off, and let me show you how we can fix that and correct that. Tomorrow they'll watch game film from their games this weekend. I know good and well he's going to do this. He's going to show them, hey, listen, your feet were out of position in this moment, and your head was looking the wrong way. And what is he doing in those moments? He's exposing their failures. And then he's going to say, but if you'll turn your head this way, and if your feet would have been positioned like this, and if you'd have been one step over, what is he doing? He's correcting. The Word of God exposes and corrects. The Word of God is the best player's coach ever. So that's number two. 
It teaches us what to believe. It exposes our failure and corrects uh, our, and redirects our heart. Here's number three. It trains us to live righteously. It trains us to live righteously. So he says this, and training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. Now, I want your eyes right here just for a second. Because I want to clarify what Paul is saying here. Not that Paul needs to, me to clear him up, but I want to make sure we don't miss because I think we have a warped view of righteousness um, in, in the churches today. So when Paul says training in righteousness, Paul is not saying that the Word of God and our practicing of the Word of God enables us to get righteousness. When he says training in righteousness, he's basically talking about living righteously. And here's what I mean. When you respond to the gospel, when you accept Christ as your Savior and embrace Him as the Lord of your life, the Bible says in that moment, the righteousness of Jesus is accredited to your account. It's imputed to you. It's given to you. So that when God sees you in Christ, He does not see your broken, messed up, fallen failures. What He sees is the righteousness, the perfection of His Son Jesus. That's why the gospel is called good news. So what Paul is saying here is not do this for righteousness. No, Paul is saying it trains you in righteousness, in that the righteousness that you have already been given in Christ, it shows you how to live in that new identity. You are clothed in Christ. You are righteous in Christ. You have been made alive in Christ. And now the Word of God teaches us what to believe. It exposes our failures and redirects our hearts so that it shows us, it trains us how to live in our new identity, which is men and women who have been made righteous in Christ. So the righteousness that I've been given freely, now my life begins to walk in that righteousness and live in that righteousness. I mean, this is the beauty. This is spiritual maturity. Can I help you? Let me say what spiritual maturity is. Spiritual maturity is not about you being able to quote half the Bible. Spiritual maturity is simply this. It's the righteousness of Christ that you possess becoming the way in which you live. It is learning how to live like Jesus. That's spiritual maturity. So we have people that can quote scripture and they go to church every week and they do all of these things and they don't look like Jesus. Listen, spiritual maturity is what, what it means is to look like Jesus. And the word of God is the means by which this happens. And I love this. He says training. The word training here is we get the word uh, pediatrics from it. The, the word literally means to parent in righteousness. To train up like a child would be trained by a parent in righteousness. You know why that's important that we see that? It's because it's not overnight. Parenting, I've got three kids. Parenting is the hardest thing I've ever done. And it's grueling and there are days where there are tears and there are struggles and there's people in the fetal position and that's just me and my wife. That's not even the kids. <laughs> and there are things, times we got to say some hard stuff and we got to correct some bad behavior. And we got, we, there's, there's days that are hard. And listen, and it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like we gave birth to the kids and all of a sudden they're like fully mature adults. There's years and years and years of training and development and nurturing. Why am I saying this? Listen, spiritual maturity is not something you pull out of the microwave. It's something that's developed in the crock pot. It takes time. 
That's why we call it training. It's not easy. It's hard. And it's, 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 it's going to take effort. This is why we call them spiritual disciplines and building rhythms into our life because it's not easy. Listen, but listen, what the Word of God does is it trains us so that we look like Jesus. And by the way, do you know what he says here? Listen to this. He says the outcome. Check this out. Verse 17. He says that. Everybody say that. All right, that, that word that is important. We talked about this last week. It's a purpose. It's, it's the outcome. It's what, why, and what happens when we get into the word. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, here we say, here's, here's what he's saying here. That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He's talking about equipped for every good work. Do you know that God has a design for your life? And I don't mean like a design for humanity. He has that. But God knows you. He created you, not just us. And he has a design for your life. There is an invitation that Jesus has given every single individual in this room to participate in his sovereign plan of redeeming the world. There is a calling on every single one of our lives. There is a good works, a life that he's designed for us, every single one of us. And here's what Paul says. The word of God through the teaching and the reproof and the correction and the training of righteousness enables us to experience the design that God has for our life to come and be a part of his plan. And the words he uses here, he says that the man of God, some of you may be offended by that because you're like, why not the woman of God? Why not the people of God? Um, Paul isn't being sexist here. You know why it says the man of God? Because he's talking to Timothy. That the man of God, now why does he do this? Because Timothy's the pastor of the pastors. And here's what he's saying. The word of God is the only means by which we experience the maturity needed to walk in our calling. And not even the pastor is exempt from this. Listen, what you need from me more than anything in the world as your pastor is you need me to be a man of the word. For me to walk in my calling, to shepherd you well, to experience every good work that God has for me as the pastor of New Beginnings Baptist Church, you, what you need is for me to be a man of the word, to dive into the word. Listen, why? Because all of us, every single believer, there's only one means by which we grow in maturity, and that is through the living Word of God. So I need it, you need it, we all need it, so that as the Word of God shapes us, it equips us for the good work He has for us. Now, look at how it equips us. Last two words, and we're going to close out. Listen to this, that the man of God may be complete equipped. Two words. Now, it's, what's so fascinating about this don't go to sleep on this because this is where I think it gets good. Complete equipped. There's two words, different words in the original language with the same meaning for the most part. Insinuating the same point. To me, it seems redundant, right? So let's just read it. That the man of God may be complete for every good work. Wouldn't that be great? All right, so the man of God may be equipped for every good work. That seems like it would say it enough, right? Why complete equipped? Why using two different words to describe one thing? Because when you see this happen, that redundance has, has emphasis. What Paul is saying is, is that, that the person of God may be super equipped for every good work. Not just have some equipment you need, but you would have everything you need super equipped. Another interpretation of this would be to have the house fully furnished. Fully furnished. I think I just scared the baby. <laughs> fully furnished. Every good work. Look at me, believer. God's word, when it's at work in your life, makes you super equipped, fully furnished.
everything that Jesus has for your life. How many of you want some of that? We must become people of the word. I ask you to bow your heads. Some of you in the room today, you may not be a follower of Jesus. And I want you to know today that God loves you and that he sent his son to die for your sins so that you can be restored. And what the scripture teaches us, it teaches us that Jesus, paying this debt on the cross, being placed in the grave and through his resurrection, can give life to you today. And so this is where you start. The good life that God has for you, the good works, the design, doesn't start with you reading the Bible. It starts with you responding to what the Bible points you to, which is Jesus. And if you've never trusted in Jesus today, I would encourage you just today, right now, where you are, or maybe as you think about this through the day, all you have to do, the Scripture says, is come to the understanding. Is acknowledge, the Holy Spirit's calling you, acknowledge that you're a sinner. But Jesus died and he resurrected. And only in him can you have life and be forgiven. That it's not your works, it's not your goodness. It's Jesus' death and resurrection alone. And you just confess those sins. Confess that you believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. And submit your life to him and you will be saved. Listen, if that's the prayer that you need to pray, that's a decision you need to make today, whether it's right here in this room or whether it's at your home later as you process this, here's what I want you to do. If you do that, if you, if you accept the invitation of salvation that Jesus has, I want you to simply text NBBC, the letters NBBC, to the number 313131, NBBC to the number 313131, and let us celebrate this with you uh, as a staff. I pray that you would. And for the rest of us in this room, those of you who know Jesus, I have one admonishment for you. Let's be people of the word. Let's be people of the word. Father, we love you. We thank you, God. And we ask now in the name of Jesus that you would speak to us, that you would allow us to walk in faithfulness, developing this rhythm into our life. God, that we would have a foundation we could rest our life on with truth that is unshakable. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.